Chapter Thirty of In the Pecos Country by Edward Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty: Discussions and Plans. When they reached the campfire, it had burned so low that they threw on considerable more wood before sitting down to their lunch. As it flamed up and the cheerful light forced the oppressive gloom back from around them, both felt a corresponding rise in spirits. "'It was lucky that I brought along that mate,' remarked Mickey, as he produced the venison already cooked and prepared for the palate. "'It's a custom that Mr. Soot Simpson showed me, and I like it very much. You'll note that the mate would be a great deal better if we had some salt and pepper, if we could keep it a few days till it got tender.' but as it is i think we'll worry it down it seems to me that i never tasted anything better responded fred but that i suppose is because i became so hungry before tasting it yes all right if you want to know how good a cup of water can taste go two days without drinking or if you want to enjoy a good night's rest sit up for two nights and so if you want to enjoy a nice meal of victuals you must fast for a day or two now I don't need any fasting, for I always enjoyed eating from the first pratty they give me to suck when I was a few wakes old. Well, Mickey, you've been pretty well around the cave, and I want to know what you think of our chance of getting out. The face of the Irishman became serious, and he looked thoughtfully into the fire a moment before answering. Disposed as he was to view everything from the sunshiny side, Mickey was not such a simpleton as to consider their incarceration in the cave a matter that could be passed off with a quip and jest. He had explored the interior pretty thoroughly and gained a correct idea of their situation, but as yet he saw no practical way of getting out. The plan of diving down the stream and trusting to Providence to come up on the outside was to be the last resort. Mickey did not propose to undertake it until convinced that no other scheme was open to him. In going about the cave he struck the walls in hope of finding some weak place, but they all gave forth that dead sound which would have been heard had they been backed up by fifty feet of solid granite. Among the many schemes that he had turned over in his mind, none gave as little promise as this, and he dismissed it as utterly impracticable. He could conjure no way of reaching that opening above their heads. He could not look up at that irregular, jagged opening without thinking how easy it would be to rescue them if they could make their presence known to someone outside. There was Sut Simpson, who must have learned that he had gone upon the wrong trail and who had therefore turned back to the assistance of his former comrade. The latter knew him to be a veteran of the prairie, one who could read signs that to others were like a sealed book, and whose long years of adventure with the tribes of the southwest had taught him all their tricks. But whether he would be likely to follow the two and to understand their predicament was a question which Mickey could not answer with much encouragement to himself. Still there was a possibility of its being done, and now and then the Irishman caught himself looking up at the skylight with a longing, half-expectant gaze. There were several other schemes which he was turning over in his mind, none of which, however, had taken definite shape, and, not wishing to discourage his young friend, he answered his question as best he could. "'Well, me laddie, we're going to have a hard time to get out, but I think we'll do it.' "'But can you tell me how?' Mickey scratched his head in his perplexed way, hardly feeling competent to come down to particulars, 
I can't exactly. I've a good many plans I'm turning over in my head, and some of them are very fine and grand, and it's hard to pick out the right one. Fred felt that he would like to hear what some of them were, but he did not urge his friend, for he suspected that the fellow was trying to keep their courage up. They had finished their meal and were sitting upon the sandy soil discussing the situation and throwing an occasional longing look at the opening above. They had taken care to avoid getting directly beneath it, for they had no wish to have man or animal tumble down upon their heads. Now and then some of the gravel loosened and rattled down, and the clear light that made its way through the overhanging bushes showed that the sun was still shining and no doubt several hours still remained to them in which to do any work that might present itself. But unfortunately nothing remained to do. Whatever were the different schemes which Mickey was turning over in his mind, none of them was ripe enough to experiment with. As the Irishman thought of this and that, he decided to make no special effort until the morrow. He and Fred could remain where they were without inconvenience for a day or two longer, but it was necessary, too, that they should have their full strength of body and mind when the time should come to work. "'Sometimes when I get into a sore puzzle,' said Mickey, "'and so many beautiful and irritating plans come up before me that I cannot find it in my heart which way to decide, I goes to sleep and drames me way through it right straight into the right way.' "'Did you ever find your path out of trouble?' inquired Fred. Very frequently, that is to say, not so frequently, but on one or two important occasions. I mind the time when I was courting Bridget O'Flaherty and Molly McFizzle in the old country. Both of them was fine gals, and the trouble was for me to decide which was the best as a helpmate to myself. Bridget had red hair and beautiful freckles and a turn-up nose and she was so fond of going around without shoes that her feet spread out like boards. Molly was just as handsome, but her beauty was of another style. She had very little hair upon her pad, and a little love pat she had with an old bow of hers caused a broken nose, which made her countenance quite picturesque. She was also cross-eyed, and when she cocked one eye down at me while she kept a watch on the door with the other, there was a loveliness about her which is not often seen in the female form. And you couldn't decide which of these would make you the best wife? Nary a once. The attraction of both was nearly equal. But how about their housekeeping? I've often heard father tell what a splendid housekeeper mother was, and how he would rather have his wife a good housekeeper than beautiful. But the trouble was, I had both. I've described ye the charms and grace of each, and when I add that both were elegant housekeepers, ye'll admit that my dilemma was greater than ever. They both handled the broom to perfection. They could knock a chap clean across the cabin and out the window before ye could know what was coming. Me mother used to say it was the housekeeping qualities that should decide, and she told me to call upon em some time when they wasn't expecting me and observe the manner in which they handled things. Well, Bridget was the first one that I sneaked in upon. I heard a thumping noise as I drew near, as though something was tumbling about the floor, and when I peeped through the door I saw that Bridget and her mother was having a delightful love patch. They was banging and wailing each other around the room, and as the old lady had her muscle well up it was hard to tell which was coming out ahead. Of course my sympathies were with the lovely Bridget, and I was desirous that she should win, 
but I didn't consider it my duty to interfere. I suppose the old lady had been trying to impose too much work on Bridget, and therefore she had rebelled, and was lambasting her for the same. My interest in the little affair was so great that I pushed the door ajar and stood with me mouth and eyes wide open. It wasn't long before I began to get worried, for from the way things looked the old lady was getting the upper hand. I was thinking I would have to sail in and lend a helping hand when Bridget fetched the old lady a whack that made her throw up the sponge. With that I felt so proud that I sung out a word of encouragement and rushed forward to embrace my angel, but before I could do so she gave me a swipe that sent me backward through the door, busting it off, and I was out to the ring. The interview was very satisfactory, continued Mickey, and I went over to take a sly peep at Molly. As I drawed near the little hut on the edge of the wood, I didn't hear any such noise as I noticed over at Bridget's house. All was as still as it is here this minute. My first thought was that they all had gone away, but when I got nearer I noted my mistake. Molly's mother was busy sewing, and sitting near her was her charming daughter Molly, leaning back in her chair with her head thrown still further back, her mouth wide open, and she a-snoring. I've no doubt that she had become exhausted from overwork and was taking a little nap. The mother looked up as I stepped softly in, and I asked her in an undertone how long her pit child had been asleep. She said between two or three hours, and that she would wake her up if Molly hadn't told her before closing her eyes that if she dared disturb her before her nap was finished she'd break the old lady's head. Knowing the delicate relations that existed between us, she suggested that I should arouse her, she being afraid that she would sleep so long that she would starve to death before she awoke. I wanted to come at the matter gently, so I took a straw and tickled Molly's nose. She snorted a little and rubbed it with her fist, but didn't open her eyes. I undertook the job, however, and I was bound to do it or day. I wiggled at her nostrils, and she made a yell and a jump and was wide awake. I don't mind me all that took place just then. Things was kind of confused, and when Molly lit on me I thought the cabin had tumbled in. My senses came back after a while, and when I got my head bandaged up I went home to dream over it. "'And what was your dream?' asked Fred. "'In my slumbers I saw both my loves going for each other like a couple of Kilkenny cats until there was nothing of either left. I took that as a sign that neither of them was interested for me. So I give them up, sneaking off and sailing for America before they learned my intentions.'" End of chapter 30 Read by Thomas Rose